are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're starting a new step here this evening, step number 22 on the many forms of vainglory. And it's on page 165 of the blue version, the hard black blue version, if you're following along with it. Uh, and uh, John will begin, as he typically does, with defining uh, the vice for us. And, uh, and then offering us uh, a kind of multitude of examples of it in order that we might gain some clarity, but also how... Again, he has even experienced it in his own own life and then remedies for it and what it means to overcome it in one's spiritual life as well. It's surprising both the one on vainglory and the one on pride are relatively short in comparison to many that we have read. And I imagine there's a reason for this. And part of it is probably the difficulty in capturing uh, it's specifically because often the way that these act upon us is so subtle uh, that it can be harder to describe, I think, than some of the ones that we've looked at, both virtues and, and vices. And uh, But nonetheless, very important for us to go through. And again, some, sometimes a little uh, disconcerting when you see how they manifest themselves and how present they can be in our lives. Vainglory. Number page 165. Some like to distinguish vainglory from pride and to give it a special place and chapter. And so they say that there are eight primary and capital thoughts of evil. But Gregory the theologian, or Gregory the Great, and other teachers have given out that there are seven. And I'm strongly inclined to agree with them. For who that has conquered vainglory has pride within him. The only difference between wheat and bread, for the one is the beginning. I'm sorry, the only difference between them is such as there is between a child and a man, between wheat and bread. For the one is the beginning and the other is the end. So an interesting point here that there are so many similarities between the two, you know, vainglory. Um, you know, certainly this desire to be seen and, uh, and to see oneself as virtuous as well. It's really the growth in virtue that makes a person ever so vulnerable to both of these vices uh, and uh, our self-esteem and our self-focus can make us 
blind to their presence within us. And so I see what he's saying here that, you know, pride is the more extreme form of it. Um, but uh, there are some darker elements that he will bring forward in the little step on, on pride as well. And so while he disagrees with Cassian and some of the others, I think there is this value uh, that we, we will see in his own work of making the distinction between the two. Let's see. And so now that the occasion calls for it, let us speak briefly about the beginning and some of the passions on holy self-esteem. For if anyone were to try to philosophize at length on this subject, it would be like someone who vainly troubles himself over the weight of the winds. And maybe that's my answer to the question about why these are so brief, that uh, to talk at length about them is to uh, endanger oneself of falling into a kind of vainglory and pride. And so to be brief about it is, seems to be the safest path in his mind. With regard to its form, vainglory is a change of nature, a perversion of character, a note of blame. And with regard to its quality, it is a dissipation of labors, a waste of sweat, a betrayal of treasure, a child of unbelief, a precursor of pride, shipwreck in the harbor, an ant on the threshing floor, which though small has designs upon all one's labor and fruit. The ant waits for the gathering of the wheat and the vainglory for the gathering of the riches of virtue. For the one loves to steal and the other to squander. So a lot in this definition and you know, one could perhaps even spend the whole group just unpacking it. Uh, but what one begins to see very quickly is that uh, the labors of the spiritual life, the, the suffering, uh, the all that goes into fasting and prayer can be for naught if the focus turns back in on oneself. If all these things do not lead us uh, to God or lead us to set, us, set aside our own willfulness, uh, and if they fail to humble us and uh, humble our attitudes toward, toward the other, deepen our charity towards the other. And, uh, and so, uh, as he says here, the gathering of riches sort of brings forth vainglory as the wheat does the ant. So as a person begins to grow in virtue, uh, this uh, vice begins to creep up uh, on us, uh, that we can become focused upon it. Whereas we've struggled perhaps for many years to overcome vices and some vices that can be uh, ever so humbling uh, to us and to our self-esteem. When a person reaches a certain level in the spiritual life where uh, those particular passions don't afflict us so, so deeply, or perhaps prayer has become uh, uh, regular and constant, as well as some of the other disciplines, uh, we can lose sight of and forget our past falls, our poverty, our ca capacity for self-delusion, uh, and we turn in on ourselves, perhaps first subtly, 
uh, and maybe we lose our vigilance in regards to certain passions that we think that we've long overcome. And, uh, and so the evil one can wait and often does wait for moments like this, that uh, there can be a kind of false self-assurance uh, in our growth in virtue, uh, that perhaps we aren't afflicted with certain temptations and it seems to come easier to us, or we think that we're, we guard our hearts and the, that the mind has descended into the heart, that there's kind of purity of heart there. When in reality, the evil one has simply uh, eased up on the battle to give rise to this self-assurance uh, in order that a greater fall and maybe even more lasting fall might uh, come upon us. And, uh, and, you know, to fall from the top of the ladder, as it were, can be completely devastating to an individual and uh, as well as destructive to those around, around them. The spirit of despair rejoices at the sight of increasing vice and the spirit of vainglory at the sight of increasing virtue. The door for the first is a multitude of wounds. The door for the second is a wealth of labors. And so when we begin to see that the fruitfulness of our spiritual reading, or again, of the depth of prayer or fasting, is precisely when we uh, fall into this kind of danger, that just as we can fall into despair, when we've been radically humbled by some of our passions, uh, so we can be drawn in the opposite direction into this kind of elation and sense of freedom uh, from, from sin, not realizing uh, what God is doing to sustain us at, at, at every moment uh, of our life. And I, I love that little quote from, again, one of the modern elders, and I know I've been bringing it up a lot lately, but when he says that what we see in the saints and in what they do is the least of them, that what we see in their holiness or in the, their depth of prayer or even in the miracles that they might perform, that uh, what we don't see uh, in the midst of that is everything that God is doing at every moment uh, to to raise them up out of their sin and to draw them into this deep intimacy with them, that they might be great ascetics, but the beginning and the end of that is, is always God. And uh, John is, you know, warning us over and over again here, it's the increase of virtue. It's growth in our capacity that puts us, can put us in harm's way. And, you know, I think on a natural level, this sort of afflicts people in any different field, you know, that a person can become cocky, self-assured, as it were, you know, the athlete, you know, that uh, they, you know, think that there's something special until they're knocked off their feet by somebody who's bigger and stronger. And, you know, or somebody who performs, you know, can their ego can grow and feel that they can do no wrong because they're, they're receiving this constant adulation from others. And uh, those who have reached this level of virtue might be sought out as a spiritual elder uh, for counsel and guidance. And rather than that humbling 
them uh, or in a sense horrifying them over the even the idea of it it can again fill fill them with the, this kind of thought that they they are being helpful to others it's you know that there's a kind of wisdom that has been gained there but a wisdom that is one's own personal as it were property rather than again something that is pure gift pure grace Number four, observe and you will find unholy vainglory abounding till the very grave in clothes, oils, servants, perfumes, and the like. And so, you know, certainly on uh, a baser level that how we see ourselves and how we think that we are seen in the eyes of others is what will afflict us. And so that we will do everything to magnify that experience of others or our appearance in their eyes. And he uses the example here of following us to the grave all the way, clothes, oils, servants, perfumes, and the like. Well, in the spiritual life, it can be this kind of spiritual identity. And again, the, the things that we read, or if one is a monk, the, the very clothes that they are wearing, you know, being clothed in the habit. Uh, in itself can be this kind of external sign of penance, of repentance, but uh, in their own mind can become, uh, you know, a source of pride that they, they have taken this path and persevered in it. Again, as if it's simply in and through their own effort. The sun shines on all light and vainglory beams on all activities. For instance, I am vainglorious when I fast, and when I relax the fast in order to be unnoticed, I am again vainglorious over my prudence. When well-dressed, I am quite overcome by vainglory, and when I put on poor clothes, I am vainglorious again. When I talk, I am defeated, and when I am silent, I am again defeated by it. However, I throw this prickly pear the spike stands upright. What a great uh, description that no matter how we try to throw it and get, get away from it, the little prickly, prickly parts of the, this kind of pear are always sticking up to st stick us with it in some way or another. And so, you know, that we try to move away from the pride of fasting, but then become puffed up by the fact that we've humbled ourselves in this way. Uh, to, in order to go unnoticed. Um, and so it's a curious thing that no matter way, what way we turn, the evil one always has this experience and ability to draw us back to this vainglory once again. And it can be precisely at the moment, even the very moment when we've been humbled by something, the very act of being humbled or being treated poorly by others can become a source of, of, of vainglory for us or pride. That, you know, that we see ourselves as being conformed to the saints and in some way or another and what they, they suffer and place ourselves on the, the same level, if you will. A vainglorious person is a believing idolater 
he apparently honors God, but wants to please not God, but men. Well, isn't that powerful? A believing idolater that has faith in God, but in the midst of that faith, turns back in on, on himself, that it becomes a part of his identity, uh, self-identity, but not in the way that it, it frees us from sin and uh, self-focus. It, it can add to it in this immeasurable form. And we've often talked about this, that religion, religious delusion can be the worst of delusions that we, we struggle with as human beings. When we think what we are doing is something that God has blessed, or that we're being blessed in and through the things that are taking place in our life. Uh, but that sense of, it's not really a sense of gratitude so much as it is this belief, again, that we are accomplishing it or have earned it in one form or another. Every lover of self-display is vainglorious. The fast of the vainglorious person is without reward, and his prayer is futile because he does both for the praise of men. So the hidden life, uh, we don't often hear that spoken about much anymore in our own day. Uh, even when individuals are discerning a vocation, uh, there's something odd that can take place. And St. Philip Neri uh, had this teaching to love to be unknown. And uh, so to live one's life in such a way that your actions don't thrust you into the forefront of things. And, uh, and so especially coming into the community uh, they typically would not be given over to studies or to teaching anyone that it would be living the life, this humble life uh, of doing their work within the community, but not, nothing in any way that can puff them up or give them uh, a sense of self-importance. And so often when we hear vocations talked about in, in our own day, what is, can be emphasized is the talents, the ability, the intelligence that an individual has, how articulate they are, or just the, the, the wonderful thing of the individual having a vocation or making that choice. And even we as a church, I think, can do a kind of disservice to certain individuals when we trot out seminarians uh, to, to be gazed upon uh, in order that the the church can have something to be happy about, but we don't realize, you know, in dressing them up and having them get up over and over again to tell their, their vocation story or their conversion story is not a good thing. One of the interesting things in the East is that you, you don't find, like you do sometimes in the West, these like autobiographical works where a person describes, even like August, even Augustine's Confessions, you really don't find that among the Eastern writers because I think they they understood the, the danger that uh, that that could present even to the most saintly of souls. This kind of self reflection, 
that isn't necessarily focused upon at a given moment repentance as it is to be used as a teaching tool. And uh, I think we do a lot of that in our, our day. Uh, and, you know, and I think with the point that I brought up about vocations, that we want to foster vocations, you know, to the priestly life, religious life, of course, but it should, we shouldn't create the illusion that, uh, that it's going to be an easy life. And uh, we shouldn't create, you know, the illusion that everybody's going to love you because you bear the title father or sister or brother. In fact, in our day, it could be quite the opposite. And, uh, and if you start off your vocation in that way, and then you begin to experience uh, the temptations, the trials that emerge in the course of one's life. Uh, Fulton Sheen talked about this. You know, we, we, there's an awful lot of talk about being a good priest, he said. And what we often will associate with that is that, you know, the guy's a great preacher or teacher, but we never talk about being a good victim, he, he says, in the sense of conforming oneself to Christ, of dying to self to sin, of pouring oneself out in this humble love and obedient love. And so even built into common parlance, the way that we talk about religion, uh, we, we can be trying, I think, to elevate it in the eyes of the world around us. And there's something problematic about that. And, you know, I think even St. Paul saw this very early on in his own failures at preaching. You know, of the, you know we often hear about trying to engage people where they are, and I under, understand that on one level, that we see in the other the image and likeness of God, whatever state in life they are, that we're called to love others. But, you know, Paul discovered in his attempts at preaching that of, in trying to engage in particular the Greeks in a philosophical fashion, that his, his preaching his evangelical efforts did not bear fruit, or at least not the fruit that he felt that it should be. And it wasn't until that he began to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified that those, that word began to penetrate the hearts of others. This un understanding of a God who takes upon himself our flesh and our poverty, our sin, that he bears the weight of it, in order that we might come to share in the life of God, uh, that this is something that would pierce the heart of those who would be listening to him. And even more so when I think he embodied it. And I know sometimes we've, we've laughed about this a little bit, but, you know, having somebody preaching the gospel to you, you know, standing up in a stone and, you know, and talking to the crowds, but has, you know, uh, been the scars from being lashed multiple times and stoned many times and so it's probably missing a couple teeth and you know patches of hair pulled out you know their words about the cross or about self-sacrifice are going to uh, carry a little bit more weight than perhaps somebody 
you know, filled with a kind of, even a kind of self-confidence or, you know, preaches with a kind of eloquence. You know, Paul is even criticized at one point, you know, of having this kind of strength in his letters, but, you know, being sort of gentle or meek with those when he was with, with them. Uh, that, you know, he didn't put on airs in any way as one who had been chosen to be an apostle. And he makes himself the servant of others and becomes, you know, is a tent maker to provide for himself uh, so as not to become a burden to, to others. And so, you know, we're not here to be privileged and uh, and we don't have to look to Paul to that for that. I think we simply look to the gospel and look to Christ himself. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Has nowhere to lay his head. You will be hated by all because of my name. And uh, when you know we proclaim a gospel that is lacking in that, I think not only does it fail to move the hearts of others, but move our own hearts to repentance. And our religiosity can become this identity that we put on and off every morning, like our clothes. Anthony writes, should we be looking at our works this way? I had thought a bit, was a hair, I'm sorry, I had thought was a heresy to believe that anything we do, even the good thing, is infected with sin. Well, even that which is good that we do, and that we can acknowledge the goodness in it, that we attribute that to the, the grace of God, that every first step for us is something that comes by the grace of God. So even when we make this movement to, to do good for others, to love others, uh, that we, we do that out of gratitude, but also with the acknowledgement that we are being strengthened by the grace of God, because what we're called to is not simply, again, a natural virtue or the heights of natural virtue. You know, there are plenty in the world who, uh, like M Mother Teresa, act in this kind of generosity towards others. There's, uh, uh, I think I've talked about this before on YouTube, there's a video. In fact, you could find it out of the title, uh, The Male Mother Teresa. And I've talked a little bit about this. He was in a different class in India and was taught you know, not to have any kind of connection with people in a lower class until one day, and he owned his own restaurant, was a chef until one day he saw one of these individuals lying on the side of the road and starving and eating his own skin, picking off pieces of his own skin and eating it. And it turned his life upside down. You know, it was from that moment on that he began to cook for them, sold the restaurant, took classes on how to cut hair, to, you know, began to bathe them, shave them, you know, that there was something in that experience that was revealed to him. And he wasn't, he's not a Christian. And so what we are called to is to love and, uh, but to understand that that love is something that is divine. And I think the gospel makes this clear that it's, we're not called simply to be good people. 
And even what this other man did, the one who's the male Mother Teresa, you know, there can be a difference in that. You know, what is it that motivates? And uh, the the grace of God could be active in this man, of course. That's not what I'm trying to get at. But Mother Teresa was pretty clear that she wasn't a social worker, you know, a good-hearted social worker, uh, but rather she was a Christian. And she understood that the way that she loved was driven by that reality. And I think in a deeper way, what John is getting here to is that we can't allow ourselves to focus on the goodness or the actions or what we do at all because they can become a temptation for us again to see that it's rooted in the self and we can't take this lightly and i don't want to pause any further here because i think uh john is going to draw us through it better than than i can uh, but uh, Louise writes, can we say that vainglory is present as soon as we identify with something, anything? What inner attitude could counter vainglory? Maybe vulnerability, fortitude, and yet complete dependency on God. All of the above, I would say, and in particular, humility, acknowledgement of our past poverty, of our past sin. Uh, he, he will go on to talk about along when he's along with his discussion on, on pride. Yes, when we identify with it in such a way that it be, makes us uh, idolaters, that we see this as us, you know, we, be, we become those things that if somebody were to criticize us, uh, maybe falsely even, that we would get bent out of shape by it and uh, become defensive about it. If we have identified with it to such an extent that then it becomes a source of self-esteem for us. And so let, why don't we move on and let uh, John draw us a little bit here. Uh, let's see, number eight. A vainglorious ascetic is cheated both ways. He exhausts his body and yet gets no reward. And so we, again, we go back to the gospel. You know, if you fast in order for others to see you, you have your reward. And you remember how we've talked about that in, in the past, that the, the full meaning of, of that is that they, you have your payment in full. So you might see yourself as an ascetic. Others might see you as, your, you as an ascetic, very disciplined, but that is your payment in full. And so John is saying something similar here. An ascetic who is vainglorious is cheated in both ways. He exhausts himself. He deprives himself of all these things within the world and yet does not receive the, the real blessing of one who understands that those things are meant to, to lead one to, to love and to give oneself in love and to remove any impediment, to open oneself to the healing of God's grace in one's life, that the practices aren't ends in themselves or about ourselves. And so we don't want to deprive ourselves. Dostoevsky, again, uh, mentioned this uh, in the Evergatina's group, captures it beautifully in the Brothers Karamazov, you know, of sort of having these two monks within the same monastery, one who's this ex extraordinary ascetic, uh, but almost fits exactly what John is describing here, 
and this other who a very holy individual, but who also has a kind of humility there. And uh, it's only later that the, the deeper truth, I think, becomes uh, present to the main characters in the work. Who will not laugh at the vainglorious worker standing for psalmody and moved by this passion, now to laughter and then to tears for all to see? And so one is taken captive almost by this kind of spirit of vainglory that one is moved in, in seemingly spiritual ways, either uh, to tears, seemingly tears of sorrow or compunction, or joy, this laughter. And so one can swing back and forth between them, but not because of uh, this acknowledgement of the goodness of God's love or the depth of one's poverty, but, but rather because they are, are seeing themselves as being religious in some way of having this identity that they, they want others to see. God often hides from our eyes, even those perfections that we have obtained, but he who praises us or rather misleads us, opens our eyes by his praise. And as soon as our eyes are open, our treasure vanishes. And so the evil one will put a thought before us uh, to, to think highly of ourselves. Again, even about the things that we have suffered or what we've had to endure at the hands uh, of others. Or he will put it into the mind of others to praise us in a certain kind of way that in, endangers us. And, you know, I think there's a genuine way, certainly, where we can offer a person a compliment that I, I don't think we have to become, you know, these hard-hearted individuals that never acknowledge that. Uh, but there can, can be, you know, the person who is the narcissist can play off of the individual who is deeply wounded in another way. And this came forward in the Evergatinos, uh, where the individual uh, is uh, almost, how would one describe it? Uh, I'm not looking, not, not uh, bipolar, but uh, what am I thinking of here? Somebody help me out here. <laughs> Where you're sort of on the edge of neurotic and psychotic, uh, borderline personality, right? And they both have their own particular needs and needs that are incredibly powerful and want to be fed. And when they are put together, then it can be very destructive. The one will turn to the other in order to receive what he wants uh, and when he wants it. And the other will give it in, in order that he might be elevated in the eyes uh, of, the, uh, of the other as uh, being, a, say, a great leader. You know, 
he if he's always telling the others what they want to hear, then you know he's going to be the great leader, and it's going to feed and satisfy his narcissistic tendencies. And uh, and nobody knows this better than the evil one of how to play us off of each other and to draw us down these paths where we can be praising others and seeking or seeking the praise of others in order to get what we want. And in this case, it's to be elevated in the eyes uh, of another. And, you know, John tells us that God will often is a way of preserving us, uh, uh, not allow us to see our progress in the spiritual life. And in some ways make us feel that we are not making any progress whatsoever because the humility that that produces and the depth of prayer and our understanding of needing to cling to God at every moment is far more valuable to us. Uh, Father Marty writes, I suffer the vainglory of fantasizing about meeting with someone or doing something in the future that will bring someone uh, someone's conversion and a blessing. Right, that we can fantasize that what we do is going, going to bring about this good uh, or help an individual. That something that we say, something that we do, and, uh, and rather than seeing ourselves as being used as an instrument by God to bring about that healing, and again, should be attributing it to him. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that the monks would keep, you know, fleeing deeper into the desert. Because, you know, when you get a reputation or, you know, people run around telling others, well, this, you know, per, this elder has great wisdom. Or this elder has this capacity to, to heal. You know, then all of a sudden you become a spectacle to others. And that's a terrible danger. And you remember the story that we read in Evercatinos, where there was an individual whose daughter was possessed by a demon, and wants this monk to take him to these elders in order that the, his daughter might be healed. And he said, no, we can't go and present her in this way, because they're going to shrink away from this idea that they are, are capable of healing others or casting out demons, that they will suspect it as being a test of the evil one himself. And so what he tells the individual to do is to simply bring the girl into the presence of the elders. And at one point she walks up, if you remember, we read this last week and she slaps one of the elders across the face. And he doesn't say a word, but what he does is he turns the other cheek. And so he manifests the, the truth of the gospel and this, the grace of God without saying a word, and immediately the demon is cast out. And in some ways, the, I find that to be an incredibly powerful image. Uh, it's it's one who's transformed by the grace of God uh, that... Uh, that then brings about healing and blessings to others. It's not as though they're performing some sort of incantation or magic trick. It's really the action of God's grace in and through them 
And it's a very easy thing for, I think, for the evil one to put the thought in one's mind that one should do this. There's a wonderful, I don't watch much anymore, but uh, there's this one movie about an Orthodox elder. I think the movie's called The Horde. And uh, um, the mother of, of the Khan is, is uh, falls blind. And so they bring in all these characters to try to heal her. No, none of them can heal her. And so the uh, Khan sends his emissaries to this Russian town you know, to get the prince to send the holy man of the of of the church there to heal uh, the the mother of the Khan, and uh, otherwise, you know, there there will be war. They'll attack them. So it's sort of done under. It's not even asking for it. It's done with this threat, and the elder goes, and you could see he's struggling with it. You know, because this thought that he had performed a miracle before, that he had saved the town uh, through prayers and blessings from the plague. And uh, and so he's basically begged by the prince to go and do this. And so he trots off and does it. And like all the other shamans and all these other characters, he fails. And the movie goes through, and I'll make to make a long story short, uh, the failure and then his, you know, rejection by the Khan, they strip him of his garments, humiliate him in front of all the people, and they put him to work. And most of the people that are put to work there, the slaves, you know, die within a few weeks. And at one point, he's set free. And, uh, but as he's set free and making his way back through the wilderness, he makes a decision to turn back. Uh, having the sense that if God is going to use him, that what he has to manifest is not himself or any of his own abilities, but allow God to use him in the way that he desires. And he goes back and he ends up going through this, bearing this horrendous cross. And uh, almost to the point where he almost dies. And this the, the queen mother then is, is healed healed through it and they send him back but in this incredibly humbled state the young monk that he takes with him apostatizes and he himself is brought to the point that he feels that God has abandoned him uh, and uh, but it's precisely in you know this death to self and all illusion that the power of God is made manifest and so in a similar way, you know, I, I think what is being made clear to us here is that the glory of God is made manifest to us. And the, the truth, the wisdom of the kingdom is made manifest to us. And when precisely when the world sees no glory in Christ whatsoever and rejects him, he's pinned to the cross, stripped naked and mocked. And when you know, his pulpit at that point becomes the cross and his wor words become very sparse. And it's this reality that this outpouring, complete outpouring of love uh, to the point of death that manifests the love of the kingdom.
And yet we often still cling to this will to power or we cling again to this self-esteem, self-identity in all these different ways. And not even as subtle as it's being put to us here. You know, again, if somebody looks at us in the wrong way, we get all bent out of shape and want to defend ourselves. Or we want to be acknowledged for our hard work or the things that we've accomplished. And, you know, this monk that or this priest that I mentioned from the movies brought down to nothing becomes nothing. And as, as soon as that illusion of, you know, of being a miracle worker is driven out completely is when precisely when God acts. And uh, it forces us back into understanding that Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not an ideology. It's a person. And it's a mystery, the very mystery of God that we are, are drawn into, the very life of God, and not something that we can manipulate for our own purposes, or even articulate, uh, you know, by the gifts of our own intellect. It's really how we live our life that bears, bears witness to the gospel. But more often than not, our words get in, in the way. And after 2,000 years, we're, we're still clinging to the illusion in terms of how we live, live out our life. Even how we engage each other as Christian men and women is so far from the gospel that it's, it's frightening at times. So the flatterer, he goes on to say then, is a servant of devils a guide to pride, a destroyer of contrition, a ruiner of virtues, a misleader. Those who pronounce you blessed lead you astray, says the prophet. So we get back to that proverb, pride rideth before the fall. And so the flatterer, while he, he feels that he's offering you something, is can actually be putting you in je jeopardy. Uh, that you can be drawn back into that illusion once again. He, so the flatterer actually becomes the servant of the devil. Uh, that was a very uncomfortable movie. Somebody must have seen it. Anthony, yes. Uh, Ashley writes, Father, you posted something this week by Evely that, was re that really stuck with me. Whereas we're trying to use even your first move of confidence toward God in order not to entrust yourself truly to him, but tr to try to make him enter into your plans like a pawn, like a pawn on your chessboard. It is only when you accepted to be a pawn in his hands and in his plan that you liberated your hope and his action. I think this relates to paragraph six and 11, because in the same way, the believing idolater or the flatterer uses God and manipulates every good as a means to their own end for their own glory. I reminded Saint, I'm reminded of St. John Paul II saying to a friend who asked him why God would let him suffer an assassination attempt and being, and being shot that there is nothing better than to be a tool in the hand of God. 
I think the vainglorious seeks to control and betrays God for human honor or perception of strength and would rather put on airs than be changed internally than to be docile to the will of God. Beautifully put, and I think exactly what, what John is saying here, Evely is an extraordinary writer. And this one book called Suffering shake, makes me shake in my boots. And it, it unstudies me every time I read it. You know, we only receive the cross that we do not want is one of the, the things that he talks about. And even Evely was sort of overcome in his life uh, by a number of things. And so I, I never talked too much about him because the book is so, he, he did see so much. And so I would highly recommend it if one can find a copy of it. I think it's Louis Evely, Louis Evely on, on suffering. People of high spirit bear offense nobly and gladly, but only the holy and righteous can pass through praise without harm. Isn't that interest, interesting? So one can be sort of noble and bear with the verbal and even physical abuse of others, but it can be harder, John is saying, here to receive the praise and the exaltation of others because we so willingly and often thoughtlessly take hold of it. You know, we're in, we have this insatiable hunger to, to know and believe that we're loved, that, you know, that people respect us and hold us in high esteem. And so the moment it is put out there for us, we, we gobbled up. Let's see, number 13. I have seen people mourning who on being praised flared up in anger. And as at a public gathering, one passion gave place to another. So, you know, they become so frustrated uh, in that situation that, that they, uh, you know, give way to the, the vice of anger. Uh, but in some sense are, are preserved by one vice and overcome uh, through uh, a lesser one. Uh, John often talks about this in various circumstances. Uh, but there's even, again, a danger here, you know, being drawn into, uh, you know, a public gathering. You know, one might let go of that anger and uh, uh, at the flattery and rather than staying within the morning. No one knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him. And so let those who try to praise us to our face be silent and ashamed, that it is only the spirit of God, the spirit that searches the very depths of God, who also searches the very depths of our hearts. And so we can be under no illusion that someone speaking to us knows us better than the spirit of truth. And, uh, and, and we too should be guarded in what we say to others for the same reason, in order that, again, we aren't afflicting them in an unknowing way. 
in the spiritual light. And so, you know, this challenges the, the way that we look at life as a whole and that we and the way that we live our life and engage others in our day-to-day -day conversation. What is it that we desire for others the most? How is it that we love others the most? Do, are, do we want, is the greatest thing that we want for others is for, for them to love God and to give themselves over to, to, to him completely? Uh, one of the uh, modern elders talks about our greeting should not be, how are you? Or how's it going? You know, it should be, how's your prayer life? You know, that, and uh, I don't know if it was being sort of said tongue in cheek, because people probably think we're sort of crazy if we ask, start asking that every time we each meet each other. But it is, if we think about it, if prayer is, you know, at the heart of our spiritual life, then our greater concern is going to be with the greater things in that individual's life. How is your spiritual life? You know, and often we are judging the happiness of the other by what they have in this world or the things that they've accomplished, the degrees that they have or the job that they got. And we praise them the most and focus so much of our attention on those things, but often will neglect the things that are of greater weight. You know, I think parents probably worry more about being a nag about the spiritual things and the things that have to do with virtue than they would uh, about getting their kids to study in order to get into college or, you know, to practice their sport or whatever it might be in order that they might excel. Uh, that, you know, the parents are worried that they're, being, they're going to be heavy-handed you know, if they talk often to their children about the faith. Not necessarily, you know, being angry with them, but in engaging them about the faith life. Oh, let them figure it out on their own. Well, you know, they're going to figure something out in the course of their life. And it, it might be that all of those labors eventually come to naught. You know, we leave this world as naked as we came into it. So you sort of have to wonder, what are we striving for? You know, St. John Chrysostom had a quote along those lines, and I posted it one day, and a young man that I know had sort of just completed his an MD-PhD program <laughs> and had said, you know, so much for, you know, all those labors, uh, because I th think... And, you know, he was sort of good-spirited about it. But I think when we look back at our life, you know, there are times where we sweat blood or that we, you know, we spend so much time and money pursuing these things that we come to the gradual realization that it might not have anything to do with our relationship with God or our salvation. And that it's going to pass in, into nothingness. And so that we have to be, you know, very, very careful about that too, including the things that we do religiously and that we build in the name of religion, you know, that a lot of it can have more to do with us than it has to do with, with Christ. Sublimation.
all those celibate priests over those years building these big churches <laughs> have to do something with that energy. So get busy. I'm sorry, that was a bad joke. But uh, nonetheless, I think there can be some truth in it. You know, that we can be motivated for a lot of different reasons other than the grace of God. Uh, let me see here. No one, I'm sorry, when, number 15, when you hear that your neighbor or friend has abused you behind your back or even to your face, then show love and praise him. Now, again, you know, what John is saying here is nothing different than what we hear in the gospel. And nonetheless, it can be something that is jarring to our sensibilities, that to engage another while they are in the midst of insulting us, whether it's to our face or behind our back, you know, instead of becoming angry with them, to engage them with love. And not, to, again, to do that in a condescending way, uh, but allow it to be something that is truly driven uh, by the love of Christ. It is a great work to shake from the soul the praise of men, but to reject the praise of demons is greater. So John takes this even a step further, that, you know, on one level, we can develop this awareness of guarding ourselves from the praise of men and even remove ourselves from it. But don't think for a moment that these monks living in the desert who had removed themselves from the company of men uh, didn't suffer and struggle with vainglory. And, you know, it's, they may have come to see it and perhaps see it in its true ugliness and, and power over them there in the desert, but they still had the, the, were subject to the same sort of temptation. So John says greater is the one who's able to really see the true state of his soul, but also the actions of the demons and how they seek in their subtlety to, to draw us into, again, this self-focus. It is not he who disparages himself, who shows humility, for who will not put up with himself, but he who maintains the same love for the very man who reproaches him. So, you know, we might willingly disparage ourselves. We have to live with ourselves every day. And so, you know, we can put up with our own self-reproach and criticism. Uh, but to receive it uh, and to love the very person who, who criticizes us is, is another, another thing. It speaks of a, a level of, of freedom there. That we're often willing, in other words, to give ourselves a pass. We acknowledge, you know, I think our, our insufferable nature it becomes something that's, uh, again, in psychological parlance, egocentric. You know, it's part of who we are. That's just how I am. That's my character. I'm weak. And I know that I can be an irritating person or lazy. And so we can tell ourselves that. But when somebody else tells us that, uh, then all of a sudden we, we get defensive. 
we don't like being told it. Okay, so that brings us to 30. Anyone have any, oh, Marine writes, what's the difference between praise and flattery? Well, I think one, again, can acknowledge the goodness in another individual or the good that is being done in the individual by God and be thankful for that, be grateful for it. I think where uh, that praise shifts off of God and becomes flattery is where we are elevating even ourselves, that individual outside of, again, uh, an awareness of what God is, is, uh, is doing in them as the actor through his grace, as well as being unaware of what that flattery can bring upon them. So when somebody does something good or we see somebody do something wonderful through another, we can say, thanks be to God, that, that's really wonderful. You know, when say something beautiful has emerged and then through sacrifices and labor, we can acknowledge, you know, what God has done there without, you know, pulling a person into a place of jeopardy. And I don't think it has to be phony. In fact, I think it can't be phony. I think it has to be rooted in uh, a real understanding of what John is talking about here and that we've internalized it for ourselves before we can engage others in, in this kind of way. So where we can praise them without throwing them into a kind of tailspin. Kate writes, when one looks back and sees how much one has done not for God but for self it can be a very painful realization yet what is amazing is that God in his providence was still very much at work during those times even when we were not seeking first his kingdom yes you know we can be very self-focused and God is not rejecting and you know it's interesting when we you know, Peter, you know, has this acknowledgement, this vision of faith, you know, you, you are the son, son of God, you know, this deep proclamation of faith. And then the next, you know, in the next uh, few words, he's trying to uh, stop Christ from fulfilling the word, will of the father, that I will never allow something like that to happen when Christ tells him, well, we're going to Jerusalem where I'm going to be arrested and put to death. And, uh, and yet the Lord does not reject him in that, even though, again, you know, Peter's focus very much upon his own understanding at that point. The Lord knows that he will, he will be shown both his own poverty, but he will also be shown the wisdom of the kingdom when he sees for himself the cross, the resurrection, uh, but also how God will work through him and ultimately in the end you will be bound by another and taken where you do not want to go that that very wisdom of the kingdom will shape his destiny fully uh david swiderski writes there is a tradition in my family with my grandfather father and i try when someone thanks them they say don't thank me thank god i am able very good it seems to help to realize nothing is inherent in you, but flows from God. Absolutely. You know, I think in acknowledging this, it's not ingratitude. Uh, and, you know, I, either for the person 
uh, or for God. I think we are acknowledging, though, that there is one alone who is good, as Jesus teaches, and that is God. And so even when we see him manifest himself in and through us or through others, we don't lose, we don't lose sight of that. And, you know, the rich young man who presents himself to the Lord, you know, was so good. Mark tells us in his gospel that the Lord looked, looked upon him and loved him. And, and yet he was focused upon the things that he had accomplished and worked so hard to obtain, both on a spiritual level, but more so even, I think, on the material level. And so when the Lord, you know, seeks to give him what his heart desires, go sell all that you possess and then follow me. Embrace this love, the self-emptying love of the kingdom. Let go of what you've rooted your identity in and that has become such a strong source of self-esteem. Let go of it and, and give it to others who need it and then come follow me the one in whom you will find the fullness of life and love. And he could not, even in his goodness, at that moment at least, could not break, break away from it. Because it had become so much a source of his self-identity. We will cling to the smallest of things that give us self-esteem. This, this is a tough one. So. Even though I said it was a short step when we started, it suddenly got much longer. So we didn't, I don't think we even got halfway through it, but again, that's okay. We'll stop there for the evening. And when we close as always with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.